Today's episode of the Andrew Ferris Podcast is brought to you by my friends at Kinship. If you are trying to expand your influencer marketing game, Kinship is the place to start. D2C brands need to know how to use influencers and need to know how to use them the right way. I love what these guys are doing. I talk about them all the time. Go to kinship.co, that's K-Y-N-S-H-I-P, kinship.co, and go check them out. Hello and welcome to the Andrew Ferris Podcast. My name is Andrew Ferris and I am really excited about today's interview with Mike Beckham and Brian Porter from Simple Modern. If you've listened for a little while now, you know that Simple Modern is an ongoing client of mine and that is not me claiming credit for the incredible business they have built. It's me saying that I've gotten to get up close and personal with the ride that they are on and I can tell you, as you are about to hear, these guys are for real. Simple Modern is a massive business. They are truly omni-channel and in that respect they are uh, doing something in e-commerce that is really cool and I think is going to represent where a lot of brands are going to try to go. They've done it in some different directions than others. Have a massive Amazon business. They're the number one seller of drinkware on Amazon. They have a massive wholesale business. They're in Target and Walmart and Sam's Club. Just an incredibly well-built business as well as growing D2C, continuing wholesale. They've onshored their manufacturing. There's a lot here in this business that is the work of people who really know what they are doing and can talk really, really well about it. So I think you're gonna like this. Tom, these are two really smart guys and really great human beings who you're gonna love listening to. Let's jump in. All right, Mike Beckham and Brian Porter, how are you guys? Mike, let's just do this for audio only. This is a thing that I've learned over time is that you have to actually stop so that people know who's who. So Mike, you talk first, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Andrew. Thanks for having me on the show. It's been a lot of fun getting to know you and working with you. And so it's exciting to be able to talk about some of the things that we're doing every day and hopefully make them more transparent and understandable for people in the e-com community, brand community that are trying to to grow their business. Yeah. Well, you guys have been awesome about that, like shared very openly about what's happening with both wins and losses on Twitter in particular. So I thought you would make a good interview for that reason, because you've been so free with that information. Okay, so that's the voice of Mike, so you know who's who. Brian Porter, hello. How are you doing? Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having us on. I echo what Mike said. It's been a pleasure to, to get to work with you and really glad to be on the podcast. Great. I'm going to leverage those comments to charge you guys and all my other clients more money and just like there see if go. I can do that. So it's a big now circle, you, right? Yeah. Now the <laughs> secret's out that you like working with me, so now you... Now, Every time to... I endorse you, Andrew, my rates go up. This is, this is a perverse <laughs> incentive, I think. Yeah. So let me give some people some context for what I do with you guys. And that way, I think it will give some context for the scope of this conversation. So I am working with you guys and have been working the last bunch of months, specifically on the D2C business. And when that started, Mike, you and I talked, and then uh, I talked with Chris Hoyle, who I work with, CMO, is that his title? Uh-huh. Yeah. Chris and I had talked. The thing you guys told me about the business was that your D2C business was really behind and really like just not very good or whatever. You didn't say not very good, but just that there was like all of the stuff to learn. And while everybody has stuff to learn, what I discovered over time was that actually like the e-commerce business is just smaller than your other business units, <laughs> but it's actually a very good business and is is well run and all of those things. And and so what I want to do is as I've gotten to kind of understand more of the simple modern businesses, talk through the whole thing to give people a sense of it and how you guys have gotten there. Because I think you represent a really different story than what a lot of D2C businesses are doing, but with like incredible amounts of value to offer. And we could talk D2C all you want to, but about kind of what the whole omnichannel business looks like. So uh, as a starting point, why don't you give some people some context for Simple Modern? Either one of you can tell me this, the origin story. I would love to, I actually don't know if I know the origin story of your two relationships. So I would love to hear about that and sort of how Simple Modern came to be. And then anything you want to say sort of about the mission, the product, that kind of stuff too. But uh, but yeah. start with the origin story. Okay. So this is Mike talking. The way that I first met Brian was actually at the University of Oklahoma. So I majored in finance. And then after I graduated through an unpredictable series of events, I went into the nonprofit world and worked in the nonprofit kind of ministry world. And I met Brian as a student, we developed a friendship. So our our friendship and relationship goes back, uh, I, I don't know, at this point, 17, 18 years, quite a ways. And around 2009, 
I was still in the nonprofit world. My brother had been doing some kind of uh, affiliate marketing. This was like the really early days, the Wild West of digital advertising. He'd done really well. There was a lot of shady stuff going on. He really wanted to start a business, but probably, I guess I would use the words more legitimate business. There was an idea that we saw with like kind of an auction concept. And he approached me like, hey, would you be willing to help me do this? I thought, oh, this will be a really fun side project. And so I helped him recruit some other people to start this company. And we started it in October 2009. And the thing grew like an absolute weed. And Brian re-enters the chat right around then. He was graduating and he thought he was probably going to go and do something in oil and gas, which is really common if you're in Oklahoma that you have some kind of roots or ties back to oil and gas. Yeah, um, I don't think I mentioned that you guys are in Oklahoma, Oklahoma City, if anybody Yeah, it's the e-commerce capital of the world, right? <laughs> you know, the, it's the mecca for e-commerce. I was telling um, Brian earlier that like on multiple times, people have just keep telling me that the thing I need to do on a trip out there to visit you guys is get to an OU football game because that's that's like that's really what Oklahoma is. That's my understanding. It, it needs to happen. I mean, the the yeah, the football, the love for football here runs deep. So we had started this company, my you know, my brother and I had and it was growing like crazy. And so I, I told Brian, like he was looking for a job and just said, Hey, if you have any ideas, let me know. And I, I just said, Hey, you should really consider coming and, and jumping on with this thing that my brother and I have started. So that business, which was a totally D to C business started October, 2009 by November, 2010, it had its first million dollar revenue day, just an absolute bonkers. I mean, Shopify doesn't exist. So just to give kind of everybody listening a frame of reference, this is back when any you know anything that you have you built you you build all the front end and the back end code there's no order management system you're building that yourself our equipment the servers and things like we literally had to rent a cage in, at a data center in <laughs> Atlanta and we were buying actual servers which now in a world of cloud computing and AWS just seems absurd but like these were these were real things that were happening we created this business that just grew like like wildfire. And I was the oldest person associated with the company. I was 30. So it was very much kind of like the inmates running the asylum. You know, none of us really even knew enough about business to know how abnormal what we were all experiencing was. And so this kind of proceeds for a couple of years. And then my wife and I get pregnant with our first son. So I'm working like 80 hour weeks. So I basically I'm working two full-time jobs because I'm still leading this really quickly growing nonprofit. And then we also now have this business that I've helped start that I'm basically like a volunteer in an executive role working 40 hours a week that's growing like crazy. Brian's working full-time. He and I are working together. Like uh, it was an auction website. And so every day you had to schedule, what are all the different auctions that'll happen that day? And there were a lot of economics involved. And Brian really ran that part of the, the website. And I was kind of like the chief economist for the company. And so we worked literally daily. We worked together daily since 2009, basically. So we're in year, year 13 and he hasn't, uh, I haven't worn him out quite yet. That's kind of how our business relationship started. And right around the time that my wife and I got pregnant, I was just like, man, I've got to go full-time on one or the other. I've got to kind of go all in because I can't be the kind of husband and father I want to be working this kind of a schedule. And that's what led to me feeling called into the business world. So from about 2012 to 2015, Brian and myself and a couple of other very pivotal people on our team, Micah Ames and Carson Rock, we all worked in the same department at that company, at that auction company. So by the time we got to about 2015, we, we had launched some more D2C type ideas. And they had ranged, Andrew, from like total disasters to like actually really nominally successful to like the very last thing that we had gotten involved in at this company that I was running with my brother was we really, for years, we had kind of been fighting against Amazon. You know, we were kind of doing D to C stuff and Amazon was kind of like the empire. And it was like kind of fighting against the empire to use some of Shopify's language. And then in about 2015, it just became obvious, like they are winning and it would be a lot easier to win working with them than fighting against them. 
And so we had launched some brands, uh, again, under this company that we were all working for in kind of like pillows and like mattresses and sheets and stuff. There's a couple of relics from that period. If you go on Amazon and you search pillow, I guarantee the number one thing you'll see is the Beckham Hotel collection pillows. There are no Beckham (laughs) Hotels. This is named after my brother and he and I, and he designed that pillow. David Beckham almost sued us over using Beckham Hotel. We're like, it's our name too. So anyway, yeah, I recognize uh, that you're a world famous soccer player, but you don't get the Beckham name for yourself. Yeah, like, exactly. Uh, and actually a, a funny thing about that, that skew, which is one of the things that came from that period, that's Thrasio's very best item on their in their entire portfolio. Is so, oh, so you sold that to Thrasio. It, it's, it didn't go directly to Thrasio. That's a, another, another rabbit trail that we could go down yeah, through, through a series of events. So anyway, we get to 2015. We have started to get some experience on the Amazon marketplace and see some of the opportunity there. Brian and Micah, you know, that I'm working with approached me and just said, hey, we would really like to try something like this just as like a side business. I mean, I really think, Andrew, we had very modest ambitions at first. It was just like, we love working together. We love the culture in our office. We have one of those offices, one of those kind of areas of the building where like people would just come by and hang out because they just liked being around the group of people there. And so, hey, could we could we create some kind of a side thing, sell really high quality products, focus on Amazon first, have a culture like the culture that we've had working together, have a focus on generosity. Wouldn't that be cool? And that was that was basically the idea. We didn't know anything about water bottles, hydration. You know, we, we, none of that stuff was nailed down. It was just kind of that idea. And that became the seed that eventually grew into uh, what Simple Modern is today. Man, there's a lot of stuff in that story that I didn't know and is really, really, is really cool. I think that's, uh, what I did know is that you guys had deep e-commerce experience before from some other stuff. I didn't realize just how, I relate to the experience of working for an e-commerce company early. This is in 2014, but when I was working for Kalo, which is sort of the first big Silicon Ring brand, that's that wasn't quite as crazy as you're talking about in terms of the growth, but that was zero to 20 million in a year and a half with no funding. I had the same experience of, of like not really realizing that actually e-commerce isn't that easy um, and yeah, that nah. like it just happened to like we just hit in this crazy way. You can win in this really crazy way. But so to put it yeah. in frame of reference, by the time we started Simple Modern, we had been a part of over a billion dollars in e-commerce sales. Yeah. We yeah. price shipped 10, 20 million packages. Like we had just we had done a lot of like one of the things I explained yeah. to people, you know, I'm coming from the nonprofit world when I came into e-commerce. There was so much that you'll hear see this talked about by the veterans in the industry is like, there's just so many things you have to be good at to do e-commerce well. And I feel like it was baptism by fire, getting an MBA on crack. I transitioned into the business world and it's just like, man, there are like 15 new areas that I need to learn about in order to do my job well. And so it was this really random confluence of events where you've got this group of people in the middle of Oklahoma that actually have a ton of e-commerce experience across a lot of the different disciplines. And that created the recipe for us to have a shot, I think. I have learned that there is just no substitute for experience. You guys got it in a world where the growth happens so fast and you're also doing all these different things that you you also got this very broad range of experience. Like you said, e-commerce is a generalist sport for sure, especially in the early stages when you're touching everything. You know, if you come into a mature e-commerce business, well, maybe they've got somebody over here doing supply chain, somebody over there doing your performance marketing, whatever. But in those early stages, you're just doing, you're touching everything. You're just doing everything. And there's so much value in that. One of the things I tell people who are, when they ask me like, where should I start in e-commerce if I want to go do this is what I always tell them is go work at an agency because basically it's the same principle, which is like, especially if you have a specific thing, like, Hey, I want to get good on ads or whatever, like, which is the kind of thing people ask me specifically about. I'll just tell them like, what you need is reps. You just need as many reps as you can possibly get. And an agency uniquely offers that, but it's very similar to where I got it initially, partly through an agency and partly being on the ground floor of a growing business. And just like, being somewhere where you just need people who can figure stuff out. And so, yeah, there is just no substitute. And you guys did that at a scale that's like way bigger than anything I've experienced. But yeah. One thing I would add to that, Andrew, that I think is a great point. The thing that I love about e-commerce is that you get instant feedback. So if you think about like just to draw like a contrast or parallel, let's say that we're going to launch a new product in Target. Well, there's a meeting, maybe let's say there's a meeting today that we're talking about particular product we're going to launch there next summer. So you're thinking through the retails and all that stuff. 
it's literally from the moment that you start planning this thing out till you know anything is like 13 months. And even yeah. by the time you know something, the ability to pivot and kind of change if you feel like the value proposition could be different, it's not that dynamic. Whereas with e-commerce, it can literally be like, hey, let's run this pricing split test this afternoon. Yeah, sounds like a good idea. Let's do it. And by dinner, you're like, hey, I've got an idea of what it did. Yeah. Like that to me, that's always been the most addictive thing about e-commerce is that totally. I love to learn. And it's like, oh man, you can so quickly kind of get a call and response when you're trying to learn about things or trying to test things. And so it, it creates- Well, we've seen that environment. in your account recently, right? Where it's like, suddenly you put a product up that you just, before I came, you know, you had a product hit that was just like, suddenly your spend quadrupled and oh, okay, well, what did we learn from that? And I totally agree that those like moments of victory and those bits of learning that you get fed back so fast are like insanely addicting. You just want to go chase more of them and go figure it out. So yeah, that's a good time. Just one- Important detail of, of the way that we started that you personally, I think, are unwinding in us is a fear of digital advertising, <laughs> at least for me. Yeah. Because, yeah. Yeah. As Mike mentioned, we had such an ascent with the, the auction model that we that we operated, and that was vastly due to digital ads and our LTVs were really my responsibility with the company was to improve our LTVs. And it turns out that that was just really hard to do with the auction model because customers returning was really dependent upon them winning an auction. We could never quite figure that out. And once the ads started to not bring in quite as profitable customers because ad costs are going up, that's when we really saw the business peak and saw kind of the, the downside of digital advertising success without being able to have very good retention. So that was formative for our channel strategy. It yeah. was really attractive that we could acquire free customers on Amazon. And in terms of DDC specifically, I think that you're affirming strategies that work in DDC that we may have a little bit of scar tissue on from our past experience. The other detail that I'd piggyback is we were bootstrapped. And so we were bootstrapped yep. and we didn't have crazy gross margins. It just wasn't available to us. Like some of the paths to growth that can be really effective and also can get you into trouble in D to C. It was just like, well, this isn't going to work. There's literally yeah. no way we can make this work. And I think in some ways that constraint was helpful to us early on yep. that we had to build a profitable business. We had to care about unit economics right off the bat, because otherwise, where's the capital for inventory going to yep. come from? And it kind of helped institute some of those disciplines. Yeah. Gosh, there's so much to say here. I think that on the Amazon note and the sort of free acquisition thing, I think it's funny, you guys wrestling with sort of like, should we get on Amazon or should we fight Amazon so long ago? is fascinating to me because I think that sort of like pure play D2C can still work, but the initial hypothesis and the initial like shine on pure play D2C was, uh, was about margin, right? The notion was, wait a minute, we don't need these retail stores anymore. We can just go like directly to the customer and we'll take all the margin that we're normally giving to a retailer to be the middleman here out and we'll just handle that. And then you you also kind of layered that with all the horror stories of like, plus if you don't sell through, they'll ship you 20,000 units back and then what are you going to do with them? And and it was like, let's get all of that. Let's not be a slave to somebody else's business or whatever. And instead we'll, we'll go and build the whole thing ourselves. But what's happened over time is that as ad costs have gotten more competitive, it turns out there's still a middleman and it's Mark Zuckerberg or the Google guys, right? And so you actually can't get rid of the middleman thing. And then on top of that, Amazon represents this giant source of, there's one way of looking at it, which is like Amazon is cannibalizing all of our D2C sales, which are all higher margin. Or there's another way of looking at it, which is that Amazon is actually mostly net new customers who like shopping on Amazon because it's the best shopping experience in the world. It's way better than a simple modern website. It's better than anybody's website anywhere. It doesn't matter how good you do. Like Amazon is just too good. They just they just are between shipping and everything else. It's just so seamless and so easy and everybody's done it a million times. So it's awesome. So that then represents a couple of things, which is, first of all, customers that you're not attracting on D2C. And all of them, it turns out, D2C and anywhere else, they all represent different like quote unquote middlemen. And actually middlemen maybe aren't middlemen. They're actually like your sales force. And that's actually a really valuable thing worth paying for because it's access to customers that you don't get anywhere. And so if you reframe that, now what happens is the big position of D2C is like, wait a minute, why were we framing this against these other channels? What if instead we looked at them as other channels 
in which we could capture the demand for our products. And then there is still a demand creation problem that may or may not exist. But in Amazon, of course, you've got the traffic built right into the system. And so if you can tap into the demand that's happening there, then it can work really, really well. And then actually, all of these channels can end up reinforcing one another. And so the Simple Modern business is a great business in part because it's doing exactly that. It's capturing all this stuff across these channels. And so it's really fascinating to me that you started that actually not D to C and then tried to add channels or retail and then try to add channels, but Amazon. And you said like, let's do that. And now let's go add channels from there while also caring about the brand, which is the thing that most Amazon sellers don't do, right? Most yeah. Amazon sellers are in sort of arbitrage mode, which is fine. So you can build great businesses doing that, but that you guys actually built a brand around it that then made sense for D to C and retail to add to that as well. I'd love to hear a little bit, anything you're willing to share, first of all, about the current sort of channel mix, because we're referencing it a lot here for Simple Modern. And then I'm really curious to hear sort of about those early stages in Amazon and how you were scaling that as well. And sort of maybe we can go from there to sort of layering in the other channels and how it all works together. But yeah, any context you can give about the, the mix? I'll hit on kind of the mix question. And then I'd love Brian to share about Amazon. There's very few people, I think, literally in the world that know as much about selling on Amazon as Brian does. I agree with that. I'm sorry, Brian, but you've become my go-to source for questions. So when I tap you for advice on Amazon, you just shouldn't have let on how much you know. That's that's a lot of pressure, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so I really liked what you said, Andrew. And it's actually, you know, it's funny. Sometimes you do these and, and it's like you think of a new way to communicate a principle. Here's the problem with retail. The problem with retail is that most purchasing that is high intent purchasing, I'm going to buy X, that most of that is consumables. There's just not a lot of purchasing intent, which is like, you know what? Today I'm going to buy a new water bottle. Today, I'm going to buy a new bedspread. That stuff does happen sometimes. Like We've all been in those situations, but a lot of purchasing is actually more kind of what we'll call serendipitous intent. In the process of getting this thing that I do need, oh, you know what? They have a bedspread and mine's kind of got that stain on it. And I'm just going to replace it or whatever. Here's the problem. The problem with retail, and everybody faces this, is that we'll just call it the milk problem, which is you have to have something that people are just going to always show up and buy, or it's very difficult to consistently, affordably generate demand. You know, there's a reason why the milk is in the very back of Walmart or Target or wherever. They know you're coming and that you have to get that. And they put all the other things that you don't necessarily have to buy in front of that and try and lure you in to make those purchases. So that's the first principle is like, how do you generate demand? And that's very difficult if you don't have something that people have to buy. And then the second principle, which kind of ties in with that is the only way any retailer makes it work is basically bundling. You don't see any supermarkets that are like milk, milk or us. Like that doesn't, that's not a supermarket that exists. Like a bunch of people need milk, right. but well, why is that? Because if you just sell milk, there is literally no way that you can make that business model. You can't even make milk and eggs or dairy, or even we've seen like standalone grocery stores have really been disrupted by Walmart and Target. And it's like, why is that? Because they're bundling. And so this is basically the principle that ties together. It's so hard to generate demand and intent. It's so hard to get people affordably to go to a place in a shopping frame of mind that once you pull that off, you want to do as much bundling and get them to do as much purchasing in that moment as you possibly can. Otherwise, it's very difficult to make the numbers work. And this is what the physical retailers that are thriving, this is what they do right? Is that they have just this vast array of things and they're taking advantage of, they have a few things that everybody has to buy. And then they have a whole bunch of stuff that you might or might not buy, but while you're there, they can get you to put in your cart. D2C doesn't have those advantages. Amazon has those advantages, right? Amazon has literally, that's why they have the A to Z in their logo is they're trying to remind you like, hey, we've got everything. And once they've got you on the site, they through recommendations and other things, they can tap into this same bundling. But anybody who's been really close to D2C or Amazon knows, listen, the unit economics of somebody coming and buying one thing off your site are just rarely very good. Yeah, it doesn't work. You know? It doesn't work, especially if you're buying any of those like everyday items that you have to have. Like it's like Amazon selling toothbrushes or, or selling whatever, a pack of gum. Like they do stuff like that, but it's like that stuff has to be terrible economics for them. Yeah, it's the a loss leader basically. Is, yeah, the whole play is basically around bundling 
And so I, I just, I've never heard anybody make that point before. And as you were saying that, it, it made sense to express that. This is why D to C can be complimentary because listen, there are people every day that wake up and are like, I'm buying a new water bottle for my kid. I'm gonna buy it from Simple Modern. I'm looking today to buy a, a water bottle for my kid for back to school. D to C can work really well in those circumstances. But the mom who wakes up, you know, and it's just like, it's a normal day. And we're trying to be like, hey, come here, come look at these cute kids water bottle patterns. It's just very difficult to convince them to get in the shopping frame of mind and to come to your website and to convert right then. My view is that D to C, it's great when, like as somebody said this yesterday, it's great when you're selling like package of a liquid, you know, if you're selling makeup or perfume or shampoo or like whatever, really big gross margins, that it's something that people use regularly and have to come back for. Like there's places where we've seen it work, but that's most of what we've seen work. For everybody else, I think you've got to view it as, hey, it's an important part, you know, almost like a golf bag. It's my wedge or it's my five iron. But if I try and yep. make it the only club in my bag, then I, on certain holes, I'm just cooked, right? And this is what's yep. kind of happened to e-commerce in certain environments. If it's the only club you have in your bag, then you're going to have some real trouble. So for us, the channel mix is pretty diverse. I would say... We're probably something like this month, probably 50-50 physical to digital. Next year will be more physical than digital. Our Amazon presence is really large. The website is probably about a sixth to a seventh the size of Amazon on the digital yep. side. And then our, our physical retail volume is broken up between Target, Walmart, Sam's Club. Those are our main partners right now. Even there, it's interesting because you've got the digital physical mix but then physical, you're not even some DTC earlier brands are like, we're in Target, but you guys are actually in a bunch of the retailers. And so there's actually some channel diversity even within retail in that respect. And then digital, you're at, like you said, Amazon is significantly larger than D2C, but in your D2C also, you have a mix of sort of people buying individual products, one to three in an order or whatever, right. depending on if they're doing it. But only plus, you've got a significant bulk custom business, which I know is another thing that I've been around plenty of other D2C brands that are trying to tap into that as well, where it's like yeah. corporate gifts or somebody buying some water bottles that are laser engraved for their coffee shop that they run. That's just one coffee shop. So they're not going to a wholesaler, but whatever, you know, they're basically using you to buy at their wholesale prices to go stock those. There's actually this mix of all these channels all working together, even within that. And then people, of course, are affected across each of these channels. You know, you, you show them something in one place and that's going to affect their sales on another as well, right? An ad might generate an Amazon sale and you never attribute it to a Facebook ad, it might generate a target sale. The most compelling potentially thing I think that you've said to me, Mike, is it might even get in front of a, a buyer from a yeah. retail store and they're going to want your product in your store. And so there's all of these crazy ways in which they all affect each other. So I do want to jump to Amazon because uh, like you said, like Brian has led the building of, a, of an insanely impressive business. So can you talk a little bit about the scope of that business, Brian? Anything you can say about sort of markers of, of what you guys are doing there? What do you think has made you guys so successful on Amazon? Mike mentioned we're, we're really well diversified in terms of channels now, but that wasn't the case for the first three or four years of the business. We were started on the, the Amazon marketplace. We didn't have a particular product insight. Our strategy was really we like being around each other. And so we wanted to run a business together. <laughs> That's actually uh, a great reason to do it because like you spend a yeah. lot of time with these people and a lot of businesses that I've seen go wrong. Part of the reason they go wrong is because the relationship's sour. Yeah, for sure. So I, I, really, I think that's a lot of what's made all this work to some degree. But we got a bucket of five or so products that we wanted to try on Amazon and really test out different markets, different categories. And it, it was anywhere between a tea infuser, baking mat, French press, and a steel water bottle. Whenever we tested it, all those products did pretty well, well enough to reorder at least. But since we have a lack of resources, we wanted to be the best we could be at one product. We didn't want to spread our resources across several. So shockingly, the steel water bottle did the best. So once we figured that out, the question was then, how do we turn this one skew, this black 32-ounce steel water bottle, into the best water bottle listing on Amazon? 
And a lot of the strategy to begin with was imitate what our competitors were doing and then find a way to deviate to, to make the offer better than our competitors. So that's really what we did. And with the water bottle, the observation was that there were two types of competitors. There were manufacturers selling on Amazon, and then there were well-known brands like Yeti and Hydroflask selling on Amazon. There wasn't really a middle price point. So that was really where we fit in. The strategy that really worked well for us is that we observed that water bottles are more like watches or shoes, things that you take with you in public that you want to look nice. You want maybe they could reflect part of your personality with like a collegiate logo or they just match your outfit. So the main strategy was offering a lot of ornamentations, which plays really well for online because unlike Hydroflask and Yeti, they have constraints on shelf space. We don't digitally and we took advantage of that we went all the way up to 45 colors in a listing. Most people would say that's too many. I think we ended up agreeing. But the cool thing that that does online is that increases your conversion rate. It gives customers a better chance of finding something they want in your listing. But not only that, it also opens up more front doors to your listing. So if a customer is searching for a yellow water bottle on Amazon and we've got the only one, that's now a front door to where you click into our listing and the yellow water bottle market's really small, but if you have 100% of that, it's meaningful. There's probably some SEO value there too, right? That people are searching not just for water bottle, but yellow water bottle, right? Absolutely. And as we got bigger, getting into licensing, that's even more helpful. So like certain characters, like a Encanto water bottle, there's not many out there and we have the best ones. So it's definitely an SEO opportunity. That was really the core strategy that helped us scale up on Amazon. As Mike mentioned earlier, there's such immediate feedback on Amazon. We could be testing the colors constantly. And so we would cut the bottom 10%, 15% of colors with each PO round. And we would bring in colors that we thought could be like a top five color. And after you do that for a few years, you just test into the best color set. Companies that are in store can't do that at all because they, they can't test the amount of colors and they don't get the data that we get. Hey, I want to take just a minute and tell you what it is I love about this month's sponsor, Kinship, why I went out of my way to ask them to be my initial sponsor on this show and why I recommend them to my clients all the time, including clients you've heard me talk about on the show. And it's really simple. Influencer content works for selling products on Facebook ads, on TikTok ads, on Snap ads. It works. The problem is it's a tremendous pain to go actually get it. Identifying influencers, reaching out to influencers, seeding products to influencers, getting them to post, collecting those posts, getting permission for those posts, all of those things are time and labor and money intensive. And what Kinship has done has been to utterly streamline that process for their clients so that they can quickly, smoothly, and legally get access to content that sells product on ads and also creates great relationships with the influencers with whom you're working to set you up for long-term success. So I love what they are doing. I think it works great. If you aren't spending right now on influencers as a part of your Facebook spend or of your TikTok spend or, or whatever, you should be adding it to your mix. And the best place to start with that is with the very smart and good people at Kinship. Go check them out now at kinship.co. That's K-Y-N-S-H-I-P.co. Uh, they're in the show notes. Go check them out now. Yeah. And on a cash basis too, right? That's going to constantly cycle out, especially if you're bootstrapped, it's going to constantly cycle out all of your slowest moving products and sort of stuff that you end up holding too much of. And instead, over time, replace it with stuff that turns over pretty quickly because you're changing out slow moving, less popular products for faster moving products that you can sort of bank the popularity of. So which is a massive advantage in retail and in trying to grow an online business is that if you can eliminate slow moving SKUs and trade them out for faster moving ones on top of the actual profits themselves, cash wise can create challenges, but it can also make your life a lot easier. That's really fascinating. I mean, I think what all that reflects is that the strategy here, when you hear people talk about things like strategy, people like me, right? People who are like sort of highly sort of tactical advertising copy, visual kind of focused people. We talk about tactical strategies so much in terms of these very specific 
SEO or ad or conversion rate or whatever strategies, all sort of secondary to the product. It's like, how do you change the way you structure your listing or whatever, whether it's on Amazon or D2C or whatever. But in this case, you're talking about this so much in terms of actual consumer demand and how a consumer accesses a product. And at the end of the day, those are actually like the genetic components of any business. There's people and there's products. And so you have to like figure out how to make those two things work together really, really well. The strategy sounds like it starts with sort of a combination of like where the hole in the market is, right? Between Yeti and manufacturers. And then at the same time, sort of like what people are looking for and how they're using the product in public. And then how do you sort of sort of tap into that existing demand in a system that is all about its ability to tap into existing demand, which is Amazon, right? You'll never beat an Amazon conversion rate because it's, again, it's such a good shopping experience. So if you can sort of tap into the demand, right, then you can actually move things forward. Yeah, absolutely. And our goal with Amazon was to create the best organically placed listing on relevant keywords. And if you find what the customer wants and you continue iterating on your products, whether it's the design of the product, like our lids, we have gone through countless improvements on our lids or the ornamentations going through upgrades. Eventually, if you if you do that enough, you're going to get a listing that, that ranks well organically. And, and that's what ended up happening with us. And interestingly, that's really the strategy that it got us to the top of the categories, top of the market in Amazon. And it's what really got mass retail, like physical retail partners interested in us is that if you can show them we're ranking on the top of Amazon bestseller lists and we can actually test colors better than you can. Retailers can do surveys around aesthetics, but we can actually test what customers will buy. That's a really compelling value proposition. You can look at the ratings and verify that your your product is rated as well as the, the best products on the market. So it creates an incredible resume for you to use to get into other distribution. So that's really kind of the playbook for us scaling up on Amazon. The interesting part is that once you reach scale, that strategy changes because you're doing so much volume in your top five SKUs that if you go out of stock in those, then that's worse than carrying color number 30 through 45. You'd rather just have more of the top five. So we ended up shrinking yep. our what we offered back into just the best stuff so we can we can be in stock. If you're coming back to, to find a certain color, we want to make sure that we have it. So that, that was kind of a surprising evolution of the business once we reached a scale. Yeah. Since then, it has just grown. I'm actually curious to talk to you a little bit, Brian. Quickly, if you could speak to... You guys did an experiment where you shut off all of your Amazon ads for a little bit, <laughs> which I think is like something sort of some people dream of doing because it's... But it's so, it feels so risky because it's like, oh my gosh, if we shut... Maybe they are providing all this value and then we're... The moment you shut them all off, you're just going to cost yourself a ton of money. It can be an expensive experiment and you can understand that hesitation. Can you just talk about that? That's a more recent thing relative to the origin story, but can you just talk about that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. We view our Amazon ads budget really as an investment. And we have a lot of investments that we could make in the business. It turns out whenever you're growing double every year, the inventory takes most of your cash. So just to buy all the inventory that we needed to sell, we needed profits to do that. So that's an investment. You know, obviously there's there's other investments like our team, our internal team. We ended up deciding that, you know, with Amazon ads, there's how they tell you your ads are performing in the, the interface and then what is actually like driving sales. And right. we, we realized- At the end that, of the day, and this is something we talk a lot about with all advertising, what matters is dollars that are generated, not what any platform is telling you. Like this is the key thing is like, is it actually producing incremental sales? Absolutely. In months before we ended up doing this, had he would like stay up late at night in his laboratory trying to figure out how we can uh, <laughs> know what's incremental and what's not. And we ended up deciding that, you know, when you're ranked, like top five placement on generic keywords, having another advertisement there, another sponsored placement. It's helpful, but it's definitely not fully incremental. It's somewhere in between. So the ROAS that's six in the Amazon ads platform is maybe more like a three. And then, you know, branded, if competitors don't have an advantage over you to take your customer away, more than likely they're not going to be able to. So branded keywords are really not incremental at all. And we just got to a point where we were spending tons on advertising 
and it was limiting our ability to do other things we wanted to do. So we, we wanted to see what happened whenever we turned it off. And so we did. And our placement pretty much stayed the same. Revenue definitely dropped for sure, but not as much as the ad platform would tell you yeah, that it yeah. should. I can't believe that an ad platform would over-attribute sales. That sounds that's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that's yeah. Awesome. The end of that story is that we've tried, we've turned it back on recently and there is a positive ROI on it. There's no doubt about that, especially if you're strategic in how you use it. It's just a lower ROI than some other opportunities that we wanted to invest in. So I, I think we're going to yeah. keep it on, but not quite at the level that we were at prior to turning it off. One of the principles I would just add here is when you're running your business, there's principles and there's tactics and tactics come and go in effectiveness. And there's sometimes when you want to lean really heavily into a tactic and there's other times where a tactic just won't work, but the principles are timeless and help you to steer the ship regardless of what the external environment is. So one of the things that Brian and I talked about when it came to ads is Amazon is basically a huge black box algorithm. And nobody knows how it works. And we know there's a whole team of data scientists that, you know, I imagine them being shut up in a building where they don't let them have any sunlight or access to the outside world that are constantly doing whatever it is they do and making adjustments to these algorithms and these calculations. And so even if you feel like I've nailed it, I've got the algorithm, I know exactly what it wants, it could change tomorrow. So it's a tactic. And a lot of what we've seen in the PPC world are tactics. They're not principles. A principle is our customer really responds to messages that help them associate our product with a healthier lifestyle. And so however we're talking to them, we need to make sure we do that. But then, hey, this ad's killing it right now on Facebook. That's a tactic. And that'll eventually go away. And this is the difference between creating, I think, sustainable businesses and businesses that have short flashes in the pan is that sustainable businesses have really good understanding of the core principles that lead to success. And then they're able to convert those into tactics, but they're not overly dependent on a particular tactic. So in our case, we got to a point where we felt like, man, we do not feel like ads on Amazon are driving incremental value, but we would be foolish to just say we're done, right? Because Amazon is this kind of evolving and breathing thing. The algorithm changes probably daily, at least weekly. And so maybe they weren't helpful to us two months ago, but that doesn't mean that they aren't today. But we have a principle of our advertising-driven volume on Amazon is always going to be the cherry on top. It can never be the business. And so depending on the season, depending on the circumstances, we'll rotate in and out of that tactic more heavily. Also, depending on things like our inventory, we can rotate in and out of that tactic more heavily. Or as Brian mentioned, there'll be some seasons where we just have tons of compelling investment ideas in other areas of the business, and we'll just spend less on advertising. There's other seasons where we have less compelling ideas. We have heavier inventory where we might lean heavier on that tactic. I think this is the most helpful mindset that we try to cultivate with our team, understanding the higher level principles, understanding how to apply those to tangible things, but not getting overly dependent on a particular tangible tactic or activity because those will rotate from time to time. One of the things you see after working with a lot of businesses, this is like sort of the agency thing. And I'm sure you guys have seen this just from the business you've started is that like businesses that succeed have something somewhere in the core of them that is working better than others, except for in pure arbitrage moments. And they are short-lived. Like, I mean, basically it's like right. to use your framework, like tactical moments, right? Where tactics can actually produce arbitrage. Mostly for a longer term sustainable business, you need something different. And I wonder if there's even an M&A sort of principle there in terms of when you should sell or buy a business, which is that like, you need to be able to distinguish whether or not that business is built on principles or tactics. Like if it's purely built on tactics, you're going to have a really hard time adding a ton of value to it over time. If it's really built on principles, like uh, you may have up and down periods, but you could actually probably sustain it, et cetera. So, so if you're, if you're the operator of that business, don't, don't get too tactics, How are you going to sell it? Who's going to, only a stupid buyer is going to buy it if it's built on yeah. tactics. Yeah. And this is, well, and, you know, the buyers can't always tell. Yeah. 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 And I, I think that this is the thing that's ironic is that, I'll talk to a lot of people that are in different places of the spectrum about what they're trying to do. Are they trying to get to a sale or whatever? But like one of the, you know, just a very simple, straightforward way to view this rubric for viewing this is 
people want to buy things that have a lot of intrinsic value that they think will be worth more in the future. If you're trying to build something and you're kind of like, I don't think it has long-term intrinsic value, you're very unlikely to find somebody who wants to buy that thing, right? Or that wants to buy it at a price that you want to sell it at. And so the same thing that makes you want to sell makes people not want to buy. The opposite is also true. When you build something where it's like, hey, I really am building something that has long-term intrinsic value and I'm not in a hurry to sell. That's actually when the time that people will be beating you on your door saying, I really like to buy that thing. Because the easiest way to build something that people want to buy is to build something that you wouldn't want to sell, ironically. That is so good. That is such a helpful piece of advice. I think that's really, really helpful. All right. I'm tempted to go chase down a lot of thoughts with that, but I want to be respectful of time here and get to a, a couple of last little questions. I had it in mind that maybe we'd go full deep dive retail, but I don't think we have time for that. Let's, Mike, let's do this instead. You have actually gone down the road of introducing your business from digital to retail. Can you boil down the most important thing or if it needs to be two things or whatever, that's fine. But basically, yeah. like, what's the like help people focus here. If they're thinking about entering their business into retail, what's like the number one thing they need to know about making that move for that to be successful? Like if they can find advice about entering into retail in a few places, what's the thing you most want them to hear from you? The way that you get into retail is by helping the retailer win. You have to view it that way, that you have to be coming with value that's going to help them to be more successful. And that's what's going to get them to want to partner with you. Retailers are trying to every year grow their sales and grow their profits. If you're a Target, if you're a Walmart, you, you can't just build 10% more stores, right? You're too spread out and the market's too saturated already. So you basically have like two or three options at your disposal to grow your sales and your profit. One, you can raise prices, which makes you less competitive. And they generally don't want to do, although we've been in a unique environment. But if they can find a brand that just commands higher prices because people feel like that brand represents higher value, they will consider it. Both Target and Walmart are focused and Sam's Club and Costco, they're all discounters. They're all based on this idea that you're paying a price and getting more value than what you're paying for. And so I think if you're a brand that's wanting to make the jump, you have to be able to answer the question, how are we bringing great value to the shelf? And that looks, that doesn't mean you're the lowest price point. It just means you need to be able to make a really strong case of why this is a tremendous value proposition compared to the other things on the shelf. This is one of my biggest beefs with a lot of the D2C businesses is that if you take it out of this one special little magical world of your website and you start putting it up against your peers, you just lay it on a shelf, no one's going to pick your item because of your pricing or the value proposition. So the first thing is you have to think about like, do I have a, a value proposition? If you've built a really significant brand following, if you've built a brand identity where people want to pay more for the same thing because you really do have unique features or better quality, these are all kind of selling points. The retailers also can try and increase sales and profit by driving more sales. And so an example for us at Walmart, part of our pitch to Walmart, we are basically the premium price point on the Walmart hydration shelf. And there's great products. You know, We're competing against other people that are great products at very affordable prices. So our value proposition is we are going to help bring a customer that is already shopping at your store, but was not buying drinkware at Walmart. We're going to bring them into their drinkware aisle because our That's brand really deeply resonates with those customers. And in our case, the demographic that we really resonate with is women 25 to 45. We'll say that's like our number one demographic. And that's the demographic that Walmart and Target and everybody feels like we have to win there. They're the ones spending the most money. Like that is where the health of the business lies is winning with that demographic. So I think if you can explain to a retailer, your current shelf is not capturing important demographics or the market is trending in a direction that is different than your current shelf, and you can back that up with data, that's a pretty compelling argument that you can make as well. And those are really kind of the, the two main things. It helps to have digital sales. So if you think about it, digital is usually ahead of in-store physical retail. And the physical retailers do look at digital to understand what are the coming trends because retail changes, preferences change. So you can harness that. You can say, listen, here is the trend. We are already selling digitally and we are riding that wave. And you can see this in our sales data and the customers that are already in your store 
they want to buy this. Or if you can legitimately make the argument, which I think very few brands have this kind of presence where they can say, hey, we'll bring more customers to your store. But if you can say, hey, the customers that are already in your store, they're looking for this, they're not seeing it, they're buying it on Amazon, they're buying it off our website. This was really our value proposition, not only to Walmart, but also to Target. We said, listen, your guest is our core customer and they're going to buy our bottles. They're just going to buy them off Amazon or off our website instead of off your shelves. And we could build something really special here and we'd love to work together. So the third principle I would communicate is, Being deliberate about thinking through channel conflict is probably the most important thing. Channel conflict is basically a way of saying when what I'm offering in one distribution channel and what I'm offering in another distribution channel, they clash in a way that is harmful to the brand. So I'm selling the exact same bottle, but here at Walmart at $17.99 on my website, it's $27.99. And there's this dissonance in the mind of the customer of like, well, what's going on here? So What we try to do to avoid channel conflict, there's two or three things you can do. One is we have unique SKUs for every channel. There's some inefficiency with that, but it's really helpful in a world of scraping and in a world of like all of the different kind of challenges. We try to make products that are unique to each of our challenges. We make water bottles. So one of the ways that we focus on that is, hey, how do we use different colors? How do we use different ornamentations so that what we're really pushing on the website is different than on Amazon, which is different than Walmart, which is different than Target, so that our customer can find something you know unique and that they would love in any of those different channels. And then we also think about pricing a lot that, you know, let's say Walmart wants to be at $19.99 on an item and Target wants to be at $21.99. Well, maybe Walmart gets a 28-ounce bottle and Target gets a 32-ounce bottle so that they're able to both be able to accomplish what they want to accomplish, but there's not an unfavorable comparison. So that these are these are kind of the principles. Can you make a compelling case where where the market is going that your customers will spend more money than they're currently spending, which will help drive your category up if we're on the shelf? And then can you do it in a way that doesn't conflict with and cannibalize your other channels? The final way you can do it is with higher margins. You know, the retailers are constantly asking, how do I get my margin mix up on my shelf? But I will say this, you know, this is this is the, the real talk that's that's uncomfortable. Right now, what's going on in the, the major retailers is they got so overstocked during the last few months. Yeah. Retail is like a ditch to ditch kind of world, like something works and then it's like, oh, we got to go all in on that. And then you buy way too much. And then it's like, oh, we got to clearance that. I don't think we want to buy that anymore. And then they have too little and they just kind of, you know, it's like the only point that you're really in the right spot is when you're going from one ditch to the other. So right now, the environment in retail is we need to simplify. And that is in the number of suppliers and we need to find ways to simplify with SKUs. And so that's a challenging environment. Like I've seen some very successful businesses that kill it in some mass retail channels that can't even get the time of day in another one, just because there's so much of a focus right now on streamlining the number of suppliers and simplicity. So you've got to be able to go in with an extremely strong pitch that really communicates all the ways that you are going to help that buyer be successful and win. And then I think the final point is it's like when you get a shot, you have to produce. Most people, one of the things I've said to our, our chief sales officer, Carson, who's fantastic. When yeah, he, he's when a smart first, guy. He's a, fun he's guy a smart with guy and he's been tremendously successful. We'll probably grow our mass retail sales. We'll double them next year from this year is what we think is going to happen. And when he first took the job, what I told him was, you think the job is about selling programs. It's not. It's about selling the right programs. And once you understand the difference between those two things, you can be very good at this job. The tendency is like, oh, we've got to get more physical retail distribution. And it is profoundly unhelpful to get physical retail distribution if you don't have sell-through. And if you haven't thought through things like channel conflict, you're going to create a lot more problems than you are tailwinds especially because like one of the principles we have is for mass retail, for physical retail to be really a good return, usually it has to be something that's on the shelf for more than one year. And so 
Go after physical retail. I'm a huge advocate for it. It rounds out your brand. It makes your brand more stable, more valuable. It makes your advertising more effective. Everything gets better when you add physical distribution. There's a legitimacy that having somebody like a, a Walmart or a Target stand behind you. There's a legitimacy. It adds to your brand. But you have to be doing it in a way where you're going to help them win or you're going to be on the shelf for nine months or 12 months and then you're going to be gone. It's going to be a net negative experience. So you have to be thinking through it, not just from like, hey, I really like to be on their shelf, but like, how do I get on their shelf where I'm helping them make more money, helping them be more successful and in turn, I'm winning. That makes so much sense. That's so good. That's really, really helpful. I think if somebody just sort of was to download that exact portion of what you just said as a guide for where they were going in retail. I think that would be a huge help to them starting. And it is fascinating. I mean, I sat in a meeting with you guys where when sort of word was coming that like, okay, we have too much stuff. Like some of your retailers were saying, we've got too much stuff. We've got to figure out what to do here. It was the first signal that I got that maybe there was like a deflationary reaction about to happen to the inflation, right? Because they were going to have to discount to move stuff. I was so fascinated by thinking about how sitting in that room with you guys, your particular business is so diversified that I had recently been in a meeting with an M&A broker who said, hey, basically every channel you have additionally where you've shown success is not only, of course, going to produce more profits on its own and therefore increase the value of your business, but also the fact of the multiple channels will increase the multiple on each dollar that you make because you've so significantly de-risked the business, basically. And I just like watched that happen. Like If you guys had gotten really beaten up, and I don't even really know how it ended up playing out, where a bunch of orders you expected to have happen at retail didn't come through at the time that you wanted to. You actually had these other channels that were really effective, really functional. They weren't really affected by that in the same way. And it created value in your business in a way that made it perfectly understandable to me why somebody on the acquisition side would go like, oh, that makes this business fundamentally more valuable because it's less risky on top of the upside that you get from every channel. It's kind of like in poker when they'll talk about how many outs does somebody have. And it's like their hand has these three cards they can win or these 10 cards or whatever. Yep. You want to be in a situation where you're behind in the hand where it's like, hey, I've got 15 cards that could flip over here. I'm going to win this hand. And that's pretty much what having a diverse channel strategy does is it just gives you so many more paths to victory and so many more ways to mitigate the unfortunate things that happen. One of the things that's become really clear to me after a long time, 15 years of operating businesses or, or whatever it's been, is that being in business is actually about solving problems. Like the problems never stop. We've got a fantastic business, but there's still plenty of problems because that's at its core, definitionally, like what you're doing, that's what the money's for. You're getting compensated because you're solving problems. And so the problems don't go away. I think the way that you structure your business, you can change the problem sets that you have to deal with. Like there's better and worse problems, like running out of money. How do we make payroll? Bad problem. Running out of inventory, selling too quick, good problem. But there will always be problems and how you structure the business helps define what your problem set is. But how you structure the business also helps define how many tools you have to solve those problems. If I'm running a D2C website and I've got twice as much inventory as I need, there is a lever or maybe two. I mean, I can do more unprofitable marketing or I can yank hard on the discount lever and that's it. But if you have a whole bunch of channels, for example, we had a situation where a retail partner of ours, through an unfortunate series of events, we had about a million more bottles than we needed for that partner. And they were not able to take it. That's a lot of bottles. (laughs) Which is, it's like $6 million worth of inventory that we have that we're just sitting on. We had another retailer that has wanted to do business with us say, hey, we have got an opportunity for 90,000 bottles if you could ship them in two weeks. And it's like, We can do that. And that didn't make the entire problem go away. I mean, but it made it a smaller problem. It's a much smaller problem. And it might even have turned into a win because we did have inventory. We were able to jumpstart that partnership and like, okay, well, maybe we can run that deal of the day on Amazon that we didn't feel like we could run four weeks ago or whatever due to inventory. So it gives you more diversity in the solutions that you can apply. And that leaves a lot more paths to victory. That's awesome. Man, okay. This could be a 17-hour episode because I have many follow-up questions for both of you on all of these things. Let me end with one and we'll do this as a lightning round. Maybe this will be 
for this new iteration of my podcast. Maybe this will be the way I'll, I'll close interviews. I like this question. I have found that anytime I am just in work day to day all the time, there's always something, like one thing that's sort of floating to the top of my mind. An observation recently, a question. It could be about sort of like, hey, I noticed this thing works in this area in a way that I didn't before. Is there one thing for each of you that's currently sort of bubbling towards the top of your mind as an open question or a principle, kind of a lightning round answer for you that's sort of most top of mind for you from where you're sitting in your different spots in business? We'll start with Brian. Unless Brian, I, I want to make Mike start. <laughs> I, I think you're telling us to be short-winded. Oh, I don't care. I don't mind long <laughs> or not. I'm just saying, go as long. Yeah. yeah. What's that one thing? So my primary responsibility is over our digital sales. And I distill my job down to taking listings or channels from new or launching to mature. So that's my overall goal. There's a lot of things wrapped up in that. Right now, that uh, I'd say the most important thing is in terms of new listings, creating products that is consistent with our brand and leveraging the core competencies or the moats that we've acquired with other products. So for example, we got into kids' drinkware. We tested a bunch of kids' patterns. We got Disney licensing. And so we were able to leverage that core competency into success in backpacks. But the temptation on Amazon is to go cheap because cheap tends to win in terms of conversion rates. But that's not our brand. Our brand is, is value, which is different than cheap. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So... What consumes my mind space the most is how do we create product that fits that mold that unlocks new categories, both on Amazon and B2C, that will continue growing the business because a lot of our product has kind of moved over to the mature status. It's just not in our DNA to have modest growth. We want to keep big growth going. That's the primary thing on, on my mind. That is such a helpful framework. I love the idea of thinking about a channel as going from new to mature. That is really, really helpful. You could actually take that from a sort of pure DTC perspective down to a traffic channel, not just a revenue channel, right? So you could think about email. You could think about Facebook. You could think about Google. You could think about SEO. You could think about any of those things. It's like, how do I, what's the next best place where I could take a new channel and make it mature? I think that's a really, really helpful framework. Mike, what about you? Yeah, so I think two things that I'm thinking a lot about. One is... I'm just trying, I'm continuing to try and get my arms around the entire industry and just how big it is in the US. Every time. Drinkware industry? Um, yeah, the drinkware industry, stainless steel in particular, it is just such a massive market. Our team at this point will sell eight or nine million units this year and we'll be well into the double digits next year and millions of units. But there have been points where as a team, it's like, man, we feel like we've gotten really huge. Can we really get that much bigger? And then I've seen some estimates in the last couple of weeks that last year, the market was 240 million units and that was 40% growth year over year. And so it's just amazing like how big the market is. So I've spent a, a lot more time trying to understand how big is the market and how is that volume happening? How much is happening with other brands? How much of that's happening where it's kind of white label, just trying to understand more. And really, I do a lot of this, Andrew, I do a lot of just trying to understand and trying to learn and not immediately trying to turn that into application, just trying to have a better handle on things. That's part of the reason I asked the question is because some of this stuff is like just sort of open questions in your mind. There's just always those floating around my mind about something. Yeah. And I, sometimes it's a conviction that's grown in me. And sometimes it's like a huh, I wonder about kind of thing that may turn into something or not. That's exactly why I'm asking. And the second one is it's similar to the age-old attribution debate. I'm really curious about how channels impact each other and cannibalize each other or cannibalize within a channel. You know, if you have 10 facings at a retailer and then you go to 14 facings, how do you make those extra four facings produce 40% more sales as opposed to just stealing sales from the facings you already had and redistributing them. And if you have 14 facings at this retailer, how does that impact this other retailer? How does that impact your website business and Amazon? And we're trying to understand more of the customer behaviors there. I, I think at a basic level, what we've learned is pretty much what Brian communicated earlier about ads. What you learn from different channels is they're somewhat additive and they're somewhat cannibalistic. And there's certain things that you can do that are more cannibalistic. And so they look good on paper and then they don't actually move the business forward. And then there's other things that are more on the additive side. So we're trying to get more intelligent about that, more deliberate about that. Yeah. Love that. 
All right, guys. Thank you for your time so much. This is a excellent conversation. There's a lot here. I was actually thinking while a couple of you were talking, like I got to mark that down as a place to clip and send as a preview, but there were like a lot of those. So a lot of helpful stuff. What is the best place for people to follow up with either of you to learn more? Is there somewhere you want to send people besides to tell them to go buy a water bottle? Well, with me, you can follow me on Twitter, Mike Beckham SM, or also on on LinkedIn. That's usually where I share most of my content. And this is Brian. I'm also on Twitter, J. Brian Porter. Brian with a Y, not an I. Those will be linked in the show notes as well. Thank you guys. Appreciate it. Hopefully I'll get to uh, come see you soon. Yeah. Great talking, man. Thanks, Andrew. Right. Thanks, guys. Bye. So as you can hear, just really, really smart guys who I love being around, love talking to. And like I said, great guys as well. Mike and Brian shared their Twitter handles. Those are both linked in the show notes. So you can go do that. They are great follows. They both really make a big point of sharing a lot of information, sort of building in public, really honestly. Mike tends to talk a lot about some of the big wholesale stuff they're doing and some of the larger things he's learning. Brian will get deep into some Amazon stuff where he spent more of his time and also like has awesome stuff to say about parenting and marriage and some of that. So go check out both of those. If you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Andrew J. Ferris. You can email me at podcast at ajfgrowth.com or you can just go visit ajfgrowth.com if you want to look into the services that I'm providing and reach out, talk about advertising on the show, anything like that. So thanks as always for listening. Hope all is well with you, your family, your business, all of that. Oh, and I'd love a rating and review as always. If you have just three seconds and can do that, it really does help. I appreciate it. Otherwise, I will see you next time. Scissors in the wailing wall.